Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas in personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Mind Valley podcast. So. I've been exploring an interesting idea lately, and that is the idea of vision, of expanding your vision, of creating complete visions for one's life, of then figuring out how to accelerate towards this vision. And so over the past couple of months, I've been reading multiple books on the idea of vision. We're even planning our next A-Fest, which is happening in Bali in November 2018, to be on the theme of vision. But here's the issue. Very often, we're afraid to set beautiful, massive, big, soul-stirring visions for ourselves because of fear, which is why I wanted to bring you this particular episode of the Mind Valley podcast with a remarkable woman by the name of Kristen Ulmer. Not only was she one of the champion American female athletes of her generation, but she was actually voted the bravest, boldest woman in America. Listen to this talk because it's going to help you eliminate whatever fear you have holding you back from attaining your boldest visions. Check this out. I'm Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. Hi, Kristen. It's so good to have you on the show. I'm really excited to talk to you. So, you know, just for you guys who are listening, me and Kristen bumped into each other because we are both really, really, really passionate about hacking flow. And we bumped into each other, get this, in a seminar by Stephen Kotler on flow for writers. And Kristen herself, as I mentioned earlier, is a writer. Her book is called The Art of Fear. So Kristen, let's get started. Now, one of the things I find most fascinating about your background is that you were voted the most fearless woman athlete in America. Tell us about that. Like, what happened there? I felt fearless, and the media called me fearless. It's almost like they were more enchanted by my ability to do this thing with fear and be fearless in the face of extreme risk, you know, sometimes daily making life or death decisions out there in the mountains, than they were even intrigued by the skiing itself. And like I said, I felt fearless. But it took me a while to realize that no one is fearless. And I did some things right by fear and I did some things wrong by fear. You know, the things that I did wrong by fear during my ski career really wound up messing up my life. And that's kind of what led me to becoming the fear and anxiety specialist that I am today. So, so I'm curious now, what was the most fearless thing that you pulled off as an athlete? <laughs> well, I did the first female ski descent of the Grand Teton under extremely bad conditions. And it took us six hours to descend 1,200 vertical feet of skiing. So do the math. It was pretty intense. I also was jumping off really big cliffs back then on skinny skis. And I was throwing flips and tricks like that that are only just starting to be repeated now by women 25 years later on the new technology, the new fatter ski equipment. Now, what was it? that happened to you? I'm just curious here, but was there something that you experienced as a kid? Is there some aspect of your DNA? What gives you this ability to just completely switch off your fear buttons? We like to think that we're motivated by our light, but really it's our darkness that motivates us. 
I have a saying that your greatest wound is your greatest treasure. And I mentioned before that I was called fearless. I felt fearless. But what I've learned from reflecting on my ski career now, you know, I was a complete moron back then. I had no idea any of this was happening, but I had a lot of childhood insecurities. I had a fear of being invisible. I had a fear of not being special. Well, I'll tell you what, if you jump off a 70 foot cliff and throw a big flip, you know, you're going to be seen as special. You're not going to be invisible. People are going to give you a lot of love. And so I was motivated by these demons, these insecurities. And I think that if you're really honest with yourself and if you're super successful in your life, if you look beneath your relative reality, you'll find that there's some sort of pathology or wound that's motivating you. I was no different. Now, most of the people listening, we're not extreme sports people, but we face situations in our life where we are going to experience fear. Now, looking at your website, you talk about fear at work. You talk about fear in relationships. You say, for example, if you're taking risk at work, you are going to feel fear. If you want to shift a relationship from frustrating to calm, from chaotic to loving, it's time to look at your fear. So let's talk about fear in the context of day-to-day life. How do you think fear limits us in our career? Well, it's not fear that actually limits us. It's our reaction to the fear. And unless you're going to sit in an ashram in India and just meditate your whole life, you're going to feel a lot of fear. You know, if you're going to do anything big with your life, like let's say you take on a job for which you're slightly underqualified, right? You're going to have some anxiety at work. And anxiety and fear are basically the same thing. We like to call it anxiety because fear sounds icky, you know? We like to say we're pickled in anxiety versus pickled in fear. So you're going to feel this because you don't want to screw it up, right? So you basically have two choices on what to do about that fear slash anxiety. The first choice is what most people do. You either block it out. You know, you block it out by either avoiding it or ignoring it, controlling it, rationalizing it away, trying to understand it. You know, you might see a therapist, like you just do all these things to just kind of not deal with it. You know, you the language is we try to conquer, overcome fear, that sort of thing. And it requires intensive effort and it works. You know, otherwise this kind of thing wouldn't be taught and it provides for you some temporary relief, but it actually kind of pushes the fear down and causes some backup in your system until over the years, it just gets harder and harder to not deal with that fear. And next thing you know, you might even be fearless at work, but you're kind of taking this undealt with fear home with you. And all of a sudden you're not getting along with your wife or your husband, or you just have insomnia or you're starting to burn out or you start to have anxiety disorders or panic attacks, or you start to become depressed. So that's kind of one choice point. The other choice is you turn towards it and have an honest relationship with it and learn how to feel it. And then none of these kind of long-term then occur in your life. And so what I'm saying is that fear is actually not the holdback in our lives. It's the way that we deal with the fear that becomes the holdback. I see. Now let's talk about relationships because I really want people listening to understand how fear plays out in every dimension of life. You speak about relationships in your book and I know you coach people on this. How does fear hold us back from relationships? Right. If you want to be more successful in your career, in your relationships, both your personal relationships and your relationships at work, even sports, one of the best things you can do is address your relationship with fear. Because if you're not dealing with your fear in an honest way, I say that you're locking it in the basement, right? That fear is going to start to fester and it'll show up as either an exaggerated version of itself or it'll show up redirected in other ways that don't feel like fear at all. Next thing you know, you might be kind of an angry person or you might just 
blame other people for your issues. You become like a monkey that's just kind of throwing your shit at other people. It's like, I don't want to deal with my fear. I don't want to deal with my anger, my sadness, other unpleasant emotions, parts of life. They go covert. And then next thing you know, you're throwing them at other people, blaming them for how crummy you feel. It's just a really, really bad idea to repress fear. And yet, we kind of all do it. Like this is what we're explicitly taught in our society. And no wonder we're all having such troubles getting along. So, you know, very often I'm in a relationship and there's something that I feel is not right or it's something about the other person or their habit or a behavior that I feel is not completely okay with me. But I don't want to bring it up because I am fearful of their reaction. I'm fearful that that reaction will, you know, be angry or that reaction will be to be upset with me or to judge me in a different way. How do I deal with a situation like that? So let me get it straight. You keep your mouth shut because you don't want to aggravate the situation, which is a way of avoiding fear, right? Are you a conflict avoider? I wouldn't say I'm a conflict avoider, but there are certain people whom I deeply care about, whom I don't want to bring it up precisely because I deeply care about them. Well, there's a couple things going on. First of all, like where's your aggravation coming from? It may be something that you're not dealing with emotionally yourself that you're pushing down and now interpreting or kind of projecting on somebody else. The other thing that's going on is that you may have a fear of kind of bringing it up because that's going to be resulting in a difficult situation between you and this person. The second part is that you should be afraid of bringing it up, right? It is going to create conflict. And so there's the fear of if I say something, you know, what might happen. But there's also the fear of what if I don't say something, then what's going to happen, right? And whatever the bigger fear is wins. You know, if you're more afraid of not saying something, you say something. Like fear is a great advisor like that. We get that wrong. People kind of poo-poo fear-based decision-making. But if we don't invite fear into the decision-making process, we become like we're blind in one eye and we have no depth perception and we're not quite sure what to do. And so you could just ask yourself, like, what am I more afraid of? Keeping my mouth shut and letting this fester and kind of becoming toxic in my own system? Or am I more afraid of confronting the situation and putting it out in the open? You know, that's what you should be considering. Yeah, confronting is tough, right? It can be, especially if you don't like feeling discomfort. You know, we humans have a long history of avoiding anything unpleasant, right? And having a confrontational experience with another human being is very unpleasant. So a lot of people are conflict avoiders. The way I look at it as a fear specialist is they're avoiding having to feel fear. But if you're willing to feel fear, if you're willing to do the scary thing, it actually expands who you are. There's no learning or growing in your life without fear. It's like, you know, imagine like your comfort zone. And this is just kind of a little circle that you live in. And whenever you step out of your comfort zone, whenever you have the confrontation or the difficult conversation, you know, you step out of the comfort zone, you take that risk, right? With risk comes fear, but you step out of your comfort zone often enough and then you connect those new dots, that becomes your new comfort zone. You just have expanded who you are. So I always am a big fan of whatever the thing is that you're scared of doing, absolutely you should do it. <laughs> because this is going to be the very thing that expands who you are as a person. So whatever that thing is that you're scared of doing, you should do it because it expands who you are as a person. I like that. That's the kind of stuff you would frame up and put on your wall. Right, exactly. Now, let me ask you this about career. I see very often in my company, people 
avoiding decisions that they kind of know is right. And it has to do with fear. For example, you have someone in the company who's really friendly, adorable. She's a nice person. She has a family. And the fact that she's just not performing at work. And the manager in charge of her doesn't want to fire her. He knows it's not working out. He knows she's not performing, but he's avoiding firing her because he is fearful that he is going to be seen as a bad guy, that he's going to be putting her at a massive disadvantage. He's wondering if he's being cruel because she's a mother with two kids. What do you do in a situation like that? You know, I'm reminded of a story of a kid who moved into my basement apartment once and he was doing well when he moved in and he wound up living there for like six years. And during that time, he gained a hundred pounds. He lost his girlfriend. He lost his job. And next thing you know, he had nothing in his life except for my basement apartment. And I really wanted to remodel that apartment and I wanted to kick him out, but I was afraid of doing that. I didn't want to be the bad person that did that. And finally, I'm like, I couldn't take it anymore. And I said, look, I'm really sorry. You're also now going to lose your apartment. (laughs) And he moved out and I ran into him a year later and he'd lost a hundred pounds. He had a new job. He had a new girlfriend. It's like, if you think that what you're doing is going to make you the bad guy. It actually may be the greatest opportunity that this woman has. And especially if you tell her exactly the reason why you're firing her, like that is going to wind up being the information that she can hopefully use to work on the things that she needs to work on so that she can progress in her own life. And so sometimes the high road is not the high road. Like sometimes being the nice guy is not the nicest thing that you can possibly do. And yes, it's scary and it maybe goes against how that CEO views himself as a human being, a caring, considerate human being. You know, the universe wants us all to be successful. It's going to work out. So here's a third scenario. What about when you're at work, okay? And you want to give your team a really massive goal, but there's some part of you that worries about not making it. And I'm bringing this up because I'm on your website and I see that there's a quote by you here. If you're taking risk at work, you are going to feel fear. How do we balance that out? The idea of being able to tackle something really big, but at the same time, the fear that comes from that, the fear of failure. Fear of failure is one of my favorite subjects. There are some big time entrepreneurs like Bill Gates, for example, who credits fear of failure as being his greatest motivator to bring his A game to everything he does. He really gives it everything he's got so as not to fail. But then somebody else claims that fear of failure is their holdback, keeping their butt firmly planted on the couch. Like, I'm not going to move on this big idea that I have because of fear of failure. Like, what's the difference between these two guys? And the difference is really very, very simple. And it goes back to what I said before about it's how you deal with the fear that is the problem. You know, the person that's sitting at home on the couch or doesn't act on the big idea, they're in resistance to the fear. They don't want to feel the fear. And so they're not acting on their big idea. But if you're willing to embrace the fear, merge with the fear, all of a sudden it becomes the very thing, the very energy resources that helps you come alive. Like taking it back to extreme sports, we think that we're doing this despite the fear, right? These extreme sports, but actually we're doing it because of the fear. Extreme sports takes you into higher states of the zone and flow like Stephen Kotler talks about in his book, Stealing Fire. 
specifically because of the fear. Because these athletes are merging with the fear. They're enjoying feeling the fear. So it's taking them into higher states of awareness, consciousness, aliveness. It takes you into the zone and little else does. Like fear is actually the part of the process that helps us bring our A-game to everything we do, but only if we're willing to become intimate with it, merge with it, and use it as that resource to help us come alive. That's beautifully said. So look, I want to ask you about your ski career. I want to understand a little bit more about what made you who you are. And I want to understand how did that transition happen from being a pro skier to becoming a peer specialist? Because I'm sure there's a story in there that we're all going to learn from. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, I mentioned that I did some things right by fear and I did some things wrong by fear during my ski career. And I also mentioned that I felt fearless. Well, what happened is, and this happens with anyone, you can get away with the repression of fear for about 10 years tops. And we see this in like high school students. If they're taught at a young age, like four or five, that it's not okay to feel fear. Like maybe mom says the first time you say, I'm afraid, oh, there's nothing to be afraid of. It's actually the worst thing you can say to your kid. You know, it teaches that child that fear is false. You shouldn't be feeling this. And they start repressing it. And you can get away with it for about 10 years. And then all of a sudden things start to go south. You know, maybe you have depression, panic attacks, anxiety disorders, those kinds of things, which we start to see in teenagers. For me, though, I started repressing fear around age 20, right when my ski career began. And I was really, really good at repressing fear. You know, the words conquering it, overcoming it, three deep breaths, like putting out of my mind, positive mental imagery, all the things that we do, I was really, really good at. And after 10 years, because I'd seen a lot of my friends die in the mountains, I'd had a lot of near-death experiences, and I wasn't dealing with the emotions around that, next thing you know, I had PTSD. I also wound up getting really burnt out. I started to hate skiing and I started to dread winter. I also started having more and more injuries. You see this a lot with athletes. They get to be about age 30 and next thing you know, they have injury after injury after injury. And let me tell you, it's not because of their age. It's not because of their fitness level. It's because it just becomes so exhausting to continue to fight fear like that or put it out of your mind or any kind of negativity for that matter. And next thing you know, I had to quit my ski career which was weird because, I mean, all I had to do was show up at the parties and drink a can of Red Bull and I'd get paid. Like I didn't have to ski anymore even, but there's something that felt way off in my undercurrent. There was something wrong, so I quit. Then I started studying Zen and very quickly I realized that the problem had been that I had been repressing fear in order to ski the way I wanted to and it just wasn't working anymore. And then I set out to heal my relationship with fear. And in the process, I started working with professional athletes and I realized that their underperforming problems 100% of the time had to do with their repressive nature towards fear. And then people started hiring me to work with them for problems unrelated to sports. And I found out that, you know, most of the problems that we're dealing with, the repression of fear had either everything or something to do with the depression, the burnout, the insomnia is another big one underperforming in business and all of that. And so next thing you know, I'm like, I need to write about what I'm teaching because it's so, so different that I wrote the book and now I'm talking to you and that's my story. (laughs) That's an amazing transition. Now, there are many people out there who talk about fear. And I want to ask this for people who might be interested in your work. What do you teach that's different about how to deal with fear? I love that you asked me that because when my book came out and I was creating a business around my being, an anxiety specialist, 
my husband and I got on the internet and we Googled it and Googled it and we couldn't find any other fear specialists out there, like in the world. I'm like, this is not possible. And yes, everybody has an opinion about what to do about fear. And there are a lot of anxiety specialists, which is very similar. But I think the reason why there's very few, I mean, there's got to be somebody besides me, won't call themselves a fear specialist because of two reasons. First of all, there's a perception if you're a fear specialist, A, that you're going to be fearless, which is not only impossible, you know, fears with us every single moment of every single day and every interaction we have. I feel it right now. I'm afraid of saying something stupid, right? <laughs> and so we expect our fear specialist to be fearless, which is not possible or desirable for that matter, because then it's an underutilized resource. But we also expect our fear specialist to be able to teach us how to be fearless, which I don't subscribe to that. You know, if you see a therapist that's trying to teach fearlessness, you know, run away from them because it's just not possible. And it's trying to deny fear its rightful place in our lives. And what that reeks of, and I'll just finish with a quick story, is there's a man sitting on a park bench and a bird walks up to him. And he looks down, he's like, you're not the bird you're supposed to be. Picks the bird up and he trims the tail feathers with a pair of shears. And then he trims the wing feathers. And then he cuts off the front inch of the bird's beak. And he puts the bird back down and says, there, now you're the bird you're supposed to be. And it's a ridiculous story, right? But if we're trying to be fearless, that's what we're doing. It's like we're trying to be something that we're not. Humans are the only creatures on the planet that try to be something that they're not. And I just don't subscribe to that. It's just, it's impossible. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful metaphor of helping us understand that. When we give in to our fear, we are trying to be the creature that we're not. Well, hold on. Listen to what you just said. When we give into our fear, we're so conditioned to use language like that. And so look at it this way. I love to personify fear. To see fear as like your spouse or a child or an employee in your corporation. Like, let's say we're roommates. Let's go with roommates. You and I were roommates, right? And if I were to say to you, you know, I'm not going to give in to you. I'm not going to let you win. Can you see how combative that is? And here's my favorite analogy. And this really explains kind of how we look at fear or other negativity in our society right now. Let's go back with children. The traditional number in Zen practice is 10,000. So imagine, Vision, you're a parent with 10,000 children. And half your children you've named love, joy, happiness, smart, beautiful, Gratitude is a big one right now, forgiveness. The other half of your children, you've named fear, anger, sadness, ugly, stupidity, misery, despair. Despite your best intention, would you be able to treat all your children the same way? No. And so what we tend to do in our society, and we think that this is really Zen, is we tend to nurture and love and show off to the world these wonderful children over here. Gratitude practice, forgiveness practice, really popular in America. Choose love over fear. It's my least favorite saying, right? And we nurture and love and show off to the world love, fear, or gratitude, forgiveness. And what do we do with these other children? Well, we put duct tape over their mouths. We don't let them get the better of us. We fight them. We try to control them. We try to rationalize them away by using our intellect like a sword. We lock them in the basement and we throw away the key. So that's one way to live your life. And that's what is really common in our culture. So that's actually not Zen. There's a second way to live your life where you're willing to turn towards 
you know, these children and kind of welcome them into your life in an inclusive way. Consider them, you know, take them out of the basement, give them some food, some water, some love, some sunshine, you know, and see all that life has to offer. And that's what I teach. And, you know, whatever you won't look at is always the key to freedom. Like if you don't want to deal with the unpleasant side of life, you can, you know, have love and joy in your life, but there's going to be a cost, you know, it's to your future aliveness and all that I've outlined. Like if you are willing to actually turn towards the quote negative, the fears, the anger, the sadness, the frustration, all of that, like that's actually the key to freedom. Really the real problem with our current approach to fear is our resistance to it. And us humans have a long history of avoiding anything unpleasant, like I said. You know, if fear is basically a holdback in your life in any way, shape, or form, fear is actually one of the greatest experiences we have. Fear is not the problem. It's your resistance to the fear that ultimately proves to be the problem, not the fear itself. It is your resistance to the fear that proves to be the problem, not the fear itself. Another beautiful wall quote. (laughs) Let me give you my equation from the book. And I think that this will make more sense. The equation that I have in my book is suffering equals discomfort times resistance. So let's give it some numbers, one to 10. Like, let's say your discomfort is a level 10. You're going to do something kind of crazy today. You're going to give a speech, right? And you're feeling a lot of anxiety. It's a level 10. And your resistance to this discomfort, I don't want to feel this way, right? Is also a level 10. 10 times 10, that's 100. That's a whole lot of suffering. But let's say you have the anxiety about giving the speech, but your resistance is only a level one, 10 times one, you know, you're going to suffer a whole lot less. So, you know, just in terms of like lowering the suffering in your life, you know, the discomfort, that number is really hard to change. Life is a difficult, uncomfortable experience. You're going to feel fear from start to finish. You're going to feel anger, sadness. It's all part of the human experience. If you're trying to limit the discomfort, you're like that guy with the shears cutting the bird's beak off. You're trying to be something that you're not. Like the discomfort is just innate. But the resistance is specifically taught in our society, probably from parents at a very young age, resist, resist, resist. Fear is just false evidence appearing real. Like, you know, this trying to talk ourselves out of the negativity of life is taught. And so we actually have more wiggle room with the resistance. And if you learn how to address your resistance and lower your resistance to feeling these emotions, not only does the suffering end, but here's where there's a good transition to the second part of our talk today, then the discomfort actually becomes the very thing that makes you feel alive. Like fear is, you know, an excitement or is exactly the same thing. Anger is here to right a wrong. Sadness breaks hope in our heart to caring and compassion for each other. Like now the discomfort of life becomes like this amazing experience that just makes you feel so alive. (laughs) I like that. The discomfort of life makes you feel so alive. That sounds so zen. And speaking of zen, you did study zen for 15 years. Right. It's ongoing. I find that if I don't stay a student, I burn out as a teacher. So I would love to go in that direction. And, you know, for those of you listening, we never even brought that up. But yes, one of the remarkable things about Kristen is that after being an extreme skier for 12 years, she went to study Zen for 15 years. So let's go deeper into that idea of discomfort, because I'm finding it fascinating. You've really got me hooked right now. Okay. I'm creating a course for PTSD right now. And 
in my mind, it's, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. Beneath the stress is the resistance. So I actually see it as post-traumatic resistance disorder. Like when you go through a negative emotional experience, like I had some friends that went to Paris and they went to the Louvre, they went to the Eiffel Tower, and then they got mugged at gunpoint, right? (laughs) Well, they came home. What do you think they talked about? The mugging, right? And they didn't have PTSD from it because they kind of were willing to feel it. It made them feel more alive. You know, it was probably the most interesting, most alive moment of their entire year. So what's the difference between then besides somebody that comes home and just is now completely traumatized by the experience and they now have PTSD? Well, PTSD is when you go through a difficult emotional experience and, you know, life is going to throw you curves, you know, curveballs. Like even if you play it safe, just by virtue of going to rock concerts or going to the grocery store, like you're going to have some bad experiences in life. You know, that's just part of the experience. You're going to come in contact with horrible human beings, difficult situations that are going to prove extremely emotionally uncomfortable. Now, how you deal with those emotions makes all the difference. So if you're in resistance to them and then you kind of take those children, like I was explaining in the house full of children and you lock them in the basement and you throw away the key, you know, whatever you resist persists. Maybe you've heard that. Whatever you try to control winds up controlling you. You've now kind of taken these incredibly strong emotions that could otherwise make you feel very alive and just locked them in the basement, thrown away the key. And whatever you kind of put down there, you've now given magical powers. It's now going to kind of hijack your mind. You know, fear that's undealt with is very clever at getting out and just running its unfulfilled agenda, maybe at night when you're trying to sleep, either in the form of nightmares or monkey mind insomnia, or it'll come out as an exaggerated version of itself as irrational fear or panic attacks, or it'll come out redirected as anger because we'd rather feel anger because it feels powerful than fear. So back to PTSD, like that's what PTSD is. You know, it now is running your life from the basement. And of course, then what do we do with PTSD? Well, we drug ourselves, like we take medication and we lock the undealt with unpleasant emotions in concrete 10 feet below the basement, right? That's one way to not deal with your emotions is medicate them away. But if you are actually to do the complete opposite of what we've all been taught, you know, which is actually turn towards the unpleasant feeling and make friends with it and end that war, that unwinnable war with these emotions and have what I call a fear practice. This is what I teach my clients. Then all of a sudden that problem resolves. And, you know, Stephen actually just gave me a statistic and I'm trying to find it. He said it was from Harvard. You can spend four minutes trying to kind of take deep breaths and calm down your unpleasant feeling and it's going to work. You're going to feel better. Or if you actually turn towards the uncomfortable feeling and are willing to be intimate with it, feel it, it'll actually calm down in four seconds. And you're doing this without repressing the emotion. So the course that I'm creating is first dealing with the resistance, then dealing with the emotion that they won't deal with. Then I'm dealing with the emotion beneath the emotion, like let's say they feel anger beneath that is fear that they won't deal with as kind of a three-layered jacket of kind of revealing your true self. And so that discomfort, if you're willing to turn towards the darkness and make friends with it and have a darkness practice and shine the light on it, you'll find that the darkness isn't dark after all and your problems resolve. And next thing you know, you have a healthy relationship with all 10,000 children, all 10,000 parts of life and you're in flow.
I was so thinking that this was going to be a call about extreme sports and dealing with fear. I realized you are freaking amazing. And you've gone so much deeper than I ever imagined. I'm scribbling notes right now. I'm telling myself, okay, I got to start exploring a darkness practice. And I'm telling myself right now that I realized I have a lot of undealt fears I'm not facing right now. And there are people I have to have conversations with, which I have been putting off. So this is the type of conversation I absolutely love. It's the reason why I love doing this podcast. And for those of you listening, I'm sure you guys probably feel like I do. In a way, it was kind of like a slap in the face because we realized that there's this whole aspect of our being that we may not be facing, that we need to take a deeper look at. So Kristen, thank you so much for going so deep and being so incredibly profound. And I'm in awe at you for being such a powerful sports person, but also being so beautifully wise. So Kristen's book is called The Art of Fear. You can get it on Amazon. Her website is kristenulmer.com. That's spelled U-L-M-E-R, Kristen with an E. Go check her out, guys. I think this is a teacher you really want to look into. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us on the Mind Valley Podcast. Thank you. It's been wonderful. Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast.